Hello, Parkview. Good to see you. My name is Tim Sutherland. I'm one of the guys that speaks here from time to time. Thanks for having me this morning. I'm really glad y'all are here. And I hope that by the time we're done, you'll be glad you are here too. This is part four of the story. And this is called the story because even though everybody's heard of the Bible and probably read something or heard something from the Bible at some point in their life, there's this one thing that a lot of people don't know about the Bible, even folks who are very familiar with the particular words. The Bible is is not just this collection of sayings and wisdom and guidance and nice spiritual stories. The Bible is, is, is one continuous story from beginning to end. It's the story of God bringing all of creation back to himself. The Bible isn't a bunch of stories. It, it, it's, it's the story. There's a story running through all the other stories. And that was this, that's what this series is all about. This is a version of the Bible, a particular uh, rendition of it that puts it together as one story. It makes it easier to read. How many of y'all are reading along in the story with us throughout the week? Okay, good. And if you haven't started yet, you can get one of these today and you can do it. It's never too late to start. So we're doing the, what we're doing today is part four, chapter four, if you will of the story. Now, the past couple of weeks, what God's been doing is he's been choosing this rather unlikely cast of characters. These characters who are leading in his story. There's, we talked about Abraham and Sarah. They are this, this couple that's been infertile their, their entire marriage up into their senior years. But even when they're very, very old, the Lord comes to them and he says, I choose you to lead for me in establishing a people, in populating a nation that's going to lead the world back to me. And then last weekend, we learned about this kind of spoiled brat of a kid and how he was sold into slavery by, in my opinion, his understandably spiteful brothers. I have a brother. Then he gets thrown in prison. <laughs> yeah. Then he gets, but then, he, and he, so first he's sold into slavery, then he gets thrown into prison. Things are, seem to be going from bad to worse in his life. Maybe you know the feeling. I certainly have it many times. But, but, but God lifts him up. Through all of it, God's working in his life. God's with him in the, in the bad times as well as the good. And, and, he, and he lifts him up till eventually this former spoiled brat of a kid becomes just a great leader. He becomes the second in command in the most powerful nation in the world at the time. And what we've seen so far, so much of what we're seeing happening in the story, folks, is that in spite of the unfairness and the calamities of life, and in spite of our own propensity, in spite of human beings' uh, tendency to keep doing messed up, sinful things, God keeps weaving it all together, just weaving it all together. To not just bring about good things, but to bring about His good. No matter what the storms of life bring, that's what God did thousands of years ago in the lives of Abraham and, and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and, and Joseph. And that's what we look to Him to do in our lives today, isn't it? We look to Him. We trust Him. Or at least we try to, to get us through the storms of life. Anybody need some of that? I do. I do. 
But we got to guess something. God's story is not just about God blessing those who trust Him. God's story is about God blessing the world through those who trust Him. Those who are blessed by God are blessed to bless. And there's all these unlikely characters that God does it through. And the unlikely character that takes center stage in the story this week is somebody that I'm pretty sure we've all heard of in one way or another thanks to a couple of pretty successful movies. Give me that uh, picture of these two movies. How many of y'all have seen either one of these movies? Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments or DreamWorks Prince of Egypt. How many have seen either one of these movies? How many have seen both? How many have seen neither? Anybody seen neither of these movies? You ought to. It's, it's okay. It's okay. You shouldn't be ashamed of that. You should just, you know, it's called Redbox, okay? <laughs> Netflix. It's really cheap. It's convenient. It's really good. You'll, trust me. They're, they're, they're great movies. So today we're talking about this character whose name is... Moses, Moses, Moses. Now we've all probably heard of Moses and we all probably know that um, besides being played by Charlton Heston, Moses is very famous for something. He's famous for this time that through him, God parted the what? Right, the Red, the Red Sea. One day after, after Sunday school, a mom asked her little seven-year-old son, she said, what would you learn in Sunday school today, son? He said, oh, mom, it was, it was incredible. We learned about how God sent Moses behind enemy lines on this rescue mission. And as he's leading the people of God out of Egypt, they're being pursued by the Egyptian army. So Moses' army builds a pontoon bridge across the Red Sea. So all the people can cross safely. And once everybody's across safely, then Moses calls in an airstrike. <laughs> and attack helicopters and bombers and cruise missiles come in and just blow up the bridge and the people are saved. Mom says, is that, is that really what they told you in Sunday school? The little boy says, no, Mom. But if I told you what they said really happened, you'd never believe it. <laughs> so, we've all heard something of Moses. He's this famous guy through whom God does these extraordinary, amazing, historic things. But if you know Moses' story, his life didn't start out that way. At the time of his birth, the Israelites, who are also referred to, a.k.a. the Hebrews, were living in Egypt as slaves. See, here's how it happened. After Joseph rose to second in command of the entire Egyptian empire, then he had all his family, he brought all of his family to live there, his 11 brothers, and they became the 12 tribes of Israel. They're living in Egypt, and, and well, they're just multiplying, and they're just prospering. But then look what the story tells us. I'll read it from here, and you can follow along on your eyes with the screen. Look what happens next. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. They're starting to outnumber us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. So God's people, here's what's happening, numbering, some experts say numbered as many as two or three million at the time. They become slaves in Egypt, but even under tremendous slavery and, and oppression, they just prosper. I mean, they get knocked down, but they get up again. 
Make a good song maybe. They'd get knocked down. Then they get up again. So the, but, so, but the, king of, the, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, he, he, takes, he, he ratchets it up to the next level. Look what happens next. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy, every Israelite boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile River. First slavery, then genocide. And this isn't just social injustice. This isn't just cruel political machinations. This is the darkness, y'all. This is the darkness rising up against God's story to try and snuff out the light. To try and snuff out the life that God's bringing into the world. But I love it, man, because God's story cannot be stopped. So when Moses' mother gives birth to him, uh, first she hides him for three months till she can't hide him anymore. Uh, and, and Moses' mama, she was sharp. And then she goes over the plan. She remembers that Pharaoh's own daughter goes down to bathe in the Nile River every day. So look what it says that she did. You can see it on the screen. What she did is she puts him in this basket. And she coats it with tar and pitch so that it'll float. And she, and she sticks it in the reeds along the side of the river. She puts it in the water. And then when Pharaoh's daughter comes down, she sees there's this baby. And you know how it is. She just falls in love with this baby. And, and then at some point, Pharaoh's daughter, they has this conversation, I imagine, with her, with her father, Pharaoh, going something like this. Daddy, daddy, can I keep him? Can I keep him? Please, daddy, please. You know, and the more things change, the more things stay the same. Pharaoh can't say no to his little girl. And you know what he's thinking? He's thinking, ah, what's one little baby going to do? One little baby. No big deal. And Pharaoh's daughter takes him home and names him Moses. And Moses means out of the water. That's what Moses literally means. It means out of the water. How many of y'all knew that before he came in today? Moses means out of the water. How many knew that? Okay. How many know that now? <laughs> Just checking. Just checking. So Moses is born an Israelite slave, but then he's raised in Pharaoh's household as prince of Egypt. And then one day, you know, and, and he grows up feeling the tension in his identity between I'm born as a slave, but I'm being raised as royalty. And then one day when he's, when he's a grown man, Moses sees a slave driver just beatily putting, putting a serious beat down on this Israelite slave. He's beating this, he's beating this guy within an inch of his life. And, and, and Moses and this slave driver get into it and Moses and they, they just throw down and Moses ends up killing the guy and then he thinks man I've got to hide the body hopefully nobody saw but somebody did see and as you can see on the screen word gets back to Pharaoh what Moses has done and just like that Pharaoh sees to it that Moses goes from prince of Egypt to wanted man from royalty to fugitive and so Moses has to run and, and he runs away to a faraway place where no one knows what's going on in the rest of the world called Wisconsin <laughs> no 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 I got a problem with the Packers but I, the rest of Wisconsin's okay they keep beating us that's the problem um, no, he runs away to this place called Midian. Somebody say Midian. Midian. Moses goes to Midian. In Midian, he becomes this simple shepherd. 
not to be confused with civil shepherd. And, 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 he's, and, he's, and he's apparently just going to live out his days there. And 40 more years go by and he's out in the, in the wilderness tending the sheep one day. And then he comes up on this shrub. And it's on fire, but it's not burning. It's amazing. Here's an artist's rendering of what it might have looked like. Think about coming up on that. And then on top of it, a voice starts to speak. First thing the voice says is, take off your shoes. You know, you're standing on holy ground. You know, so Moses slips off his shoes and probably made sure there were sheep around. Probably make sure you're not stepping in something. And, uh, but then the voice speaks. And the voice says, I've heard the cry of the Israelites. I, I, it's reached me. I know how they're being oppressed by their Egyptian slave masters. And, I, and I, I want you to go to Egypt and I want you to set my people free. Now, as we're talking about this, make sure you get something real clear here. When, when God says to Moses, Egypt and the Egyptian, remember who we're talking about now. E Egypt has been the preeminent, the number one power in the world since really the dawn of history in this part of the world. Put it in perspective here, by the time Moses comes along, the pyramids have already been built for a thousand years. I mean, Egypt is the preeminent power in the world, greatest power in the world, and God says to Moses, uh, you're going to go in there and you're going to set my people free. You're going to set free the Egyptians' number one source of manual labor. And Moses had to be thinking, really? See, when it comes to leading for the Lord, when it comes to taking a person's rightful place in the, in the big story of what God is doing in this world, I think there's really two kinds of people. I think there's exclamation mark type people, and I think there's question mark type people. Exclamation mark type people are folks that when you say, man, God has a role for you, God has a part to play, there is a character, there is a significant character you're meant to be in his story of setting the whole world free. Exclamation mark people are like, cool. Let's do it. Where do I sign up? I mean, exclamation mark type people are, you know, they're type A. They like to grab the reins and just kind of dive in, feet first, all that stuff. But I don't think most of us are exclamation mark type people. I think most of us are more question mark type people. And, and we're, in, we're, in, we're in good company because Moses started out as a question mark type person. God says, I want you to set my people free. And look what Moses says to him. Moses says, me? I mean, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Moses, Moses says, who, me? And God says, yes, you. But Moses got more question marks. Next question mark, Moses goes, well, suppose I go to the people and say, you know, God has sent me to you. And they say, God who? What, what's his name? What shall I tell them? Moses is basically saying, God, how could I lead for you? I don't really have the theological acumen to do this. You know, what if they ask me something that I don't know? And then this is the point in Scripture where God says this amazing thing about himself, where, where, where God gives his own name, the sacred, holy, mysterious name of God, where God says, I am that I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. 
has sent me to you. Here's what this is saying. God is saying, tell them that the self-existent one sent you. Think about that. The self-existent one. The one who doesn't come from anywhere. The one who's always been. The one who always was. The one who always will be. And that had to be like... Mind-blowing kind of thing. God, you're making my head hurt. That's blowing me away. He's saying, I'm the one true living eternal God. But Moses, even after that, he still has question marks. Look, he says, well, what if they don't listen to me? Well, what if they say, the Lord did not appear to you? See, Moses is afraid that when God calls him to lead, Moses is afraid that he will not be taken seriously. Or maybe he's afraid that he doesn't have the, the charisma or the personal, you know, cachet to get this done. So God gives Moses these three miraculous signs to prove that he's sent by God. And they were amazing. But still, Moses has got question marks. He's a question mark type person. Moses says, but God, you know, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech. He's basically saying, God, I'm just not very good with words. And God says, Go. Go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. Now, see if this makes sense. There's one question that Moses doesn't ask God. And if I was Moses, it'd be the one question mark that was standing between me and doing what the Lord wanted me to do. If it's me, I'd be going, God, what about my past? You know what I've done? I did a horrible thing. I, I, I killed a man with my own... T I'm a murderer. How could, how could someone who's done something as horrible as me... How, can I want, how, could, how could I ever do this amazing thing for you? Now notice, Moses doesn't ask that out loud. But God knew what he was thinking. There's things you've never said out loud. But God understands. He knows what's going on. And here's how I know that God knew what he's thinking. Look what he, look what he says to Moses. He says, go to Egypt for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. Now, God's not just saying, go back there. You will not risk prosecution. That's not what he's saying exclusively. He's saying to Moses something that, that a lot of us need to hear today. He's saying, your past won't hold you back. In my story, Moses, the past of your story isn't going to get in the way of the future of my story in your life. Okay, quick time out here in the story for a second. Let's talk about your story. If God came to you today and said, I want you to be somebody that I work through to set the world free, to set people free, what question marks would you have to get past? In order to say yes to that. And to step into that. Would it be questions related to, you know, would it be like self-image stuff? Self-doubt? Would it be your past? Would it be your financial problems? Would it be your health Problems? Would it be some relational problem that you just can't see getting past? Would it be some addiction? Would it be some habitual and maybe secret sin? 
Would it be just, man, the needs of the world, Lord, are just too much, too big. So I'm just going to live my own life and try to be a good person. Would it be that? Right now, where you sit in the privacy of your own mind and heart, what would cause you to question God using your life in a significant way for Him to set others free? What question marks would you need to get past? Okay, time back in. Moses eventually, God gets him past his question marks. He says yes to being a leader in God's story. He goes to Egypt. He says to Pharaoh what he says. He says, you know, God sent me, I am sent me to, to, to tell you to let his people go. But, you know, if you're Pharaoh, you know what you're not going to do. You're not going to open the door and say, oh, by all means, take two or three million of my, uh, of my best and most economically feasible workers and go. You have a nice trip. Thanks for playing the slavery game. No, it's not. No. No. Pharaoh won't listen. Won't listen to God. So God says, well, you won't listen to Moses or me. Maybe you'll listen to some circumstances. Maybe you'll listen to some things and I'm going to get your attention. And then through Moses, God brings these ten catastrophes on the land of Egypt and on Pharaoh personally. They're also known as the ten what? Yeah, the ten plagues. Stuff starts happening. Moses says it's going to happen, then it happens. First, uh, all the drinking water, one of them is the, all the drinking water gets turned to blood. Another one is swarms of frogs overrun the land. I don't mean just like a lot of frogs. I mean like a lot of frogs. Like everywhere you go, it's like frog, frog, squish, squish. You get into bed and it's like ribbit. It's like really gross. I mean, seriously, frogs are cute unless there's 14 gazillion of them and you can, you know, and they're like in your business all over the place. And then, and you know, then hordes of locusts come and are eating up all the crops and everything. And at one point, one of, one of the these plagues is is the sun goes dark no sunshine not like cloudy not overclassed no sunshine not one light from the sun for three days now growing up I heard I always just thought of these ten plagues as God just putting a serious beat down on the bad guys I just thought God was like punishing them for their cruel and wicked ways of enslaving his people but then I did a little more studying up on this. And what this really is, is th these plagues were signs. These, planes were, these plagues were communication from God. Because see, stick with me on this. This is real important. The reason that the particular plagues were chosen was be or, or had to do with the kind of culture that Egypt was. See, Egypt was a particularly polytheistic culture. They had gods and goddesses for everything. Man, in Egypt it was like here a god, there a god, everywhere a god god. And they had all these different gods. And each of these plagues had something to do with one of these gods. For instance, the Egyptians worshipped this god named Hopi. Here's a picture of Hopi. And Hopi was the god of the Nile River. So when God turns the Nile River to blood, they're praying to Hopi and it ain't turning back to water again. So God's saying, Hopi ain't God, I'm God. They also worshipped this fertility goddess named Hecate. Here's Hecate. She's a fertility goddess with the head of a frog. Hecate's a hottie. Hecate is a... <laughs> but see, so think about the frogs. So she's like the, she's like the frog goddess. And frogs are over on the land. And everybody's praying to Hecate saying, Oh, Hecate, re remove your frogs. And the frogs ain't going nowhere. So Moses says so. And Hecate's like, 
Heck no, I can't do anything about it. Get it? Heck. Okay. <clears throat> Next is, is, this, is this God whose name was Ra. Ra was the sun god. So when the sun went dark for, for, for three days, everybody's praying to Ra saying, Oh, Ra, shine your light on us again. And Ra is, Ra is silent. The plagues were God's, was, was God saying that Moses' God, our God is greater, our God is stronger, our God is higher than any other. In fact, there are no other gods. There's just I am that I am the self-existent one. But Pharaoh still won't listen. So the tenth plague comes. Moses says, uh, firstborn. Firstborn of every household in Egypt that has not smeared the blood of a spotless lamb on the door frame. Firstborn's going to die. And if you go, man, that is harsh. That is just too far. That is just cruel. Man, that's, not, that's not fair. If you feel that way, I can understand that. But think about this. What babies had Pharaoh condemned to death? Not the firstborn male baby. All of them. All the male babies. He made no provision for anyone to be saved. And then on top of that, here's, here's, here's the whole theological confrontation thing here. On top of that, Pharaoh was worshipped and considered to be the son of the gods. He was considered to be the son of the gods incarnate. Pharaoh was called son of God. And now Pharaoh can't even save his own son. Only those households that have the blood of a spotless lamb poured over the, you know, painted on, coating the doorposts, the door frames of the home, get the grace of the death angel passing over them. And it happens just like Moses said in that day. It happens and Pharaoh says, I've had enough. Y'all can go. I'm not going to chase you, but y'all can go. And that day of freedom and salvation has ever since been known as Passover. Somebody say Passover. And to understand the story, y'all, you got to understand that Passover, up until the time of Jesus, was considered the central saving act of God in all of human history. What was the central saving act of God in all of human history up until Jesus? Thank you very much. Keep that in mind. Passover. Now, okay, interesting story. What's it got to do with me? Thank you for asking. I'm, that's a great question. Here's what I believe. I believe if you're here today, quick show of hands, how many are here today? <laughs> Just checking. I believe if you're here today, something truly amazing and supernatural. You, you guys know me by now. I get a little wound up, but this is true even if I weren't a wound up kind of guy. Something amazing is happening right now in this place God's spirit is here and he is speaking to you no matter where you are in your spiritual journey even if you're not even sure you're here today you're not even sure if there is a God dude you don't know who you're talking about I don't even know if there is a God in fact I kind of believe there's not okay I get that you're, you, you are, you're so welcome and wanted in this place please know that but even if, you, if, that's, if, if you're not sure what you believe about God here's what he believes about you what if what if it's more important? What if there's something more important than whether you believe in God? What if it's more important that he believes in you? 
Just a thought. I believe God's Spirit is right here, right now, saying, I want you to be someone who takes your place, your rightful place in my story of setting people free. I believe that. And whatever question marks get in our way, I think there's one thing that we all have to get past for us to step into God's story. Put it this way, tell you the story. A couple of years ago, my home church, I live up in Naperville, my home church, we, we brought a guy on staff from Australia whose name is Kim Hammond and our lead pastor whose name is Dave. They were talking and Dave and Kim were talking and, and Dave said, oh, I just saw the movie Invictus and I wish everyone in our church would see Invictus so they'd be inspired to lead. How many of y'all saw Invictus? Morgan Freeman, Matt Damon, again, Redbox. Netflix, it's really good, really good. It's a true story of Nelson Mandela and how he, he, he freed his people from the racist apartheid regime, set tens of millions of people free to form a democratic nation. And, and Dave says, man, Invictus is such a great movie. I wish everyone could see it so they'd be inspired to lead. And Kim Hammond, I can't do the Australian accent, but Kim Hammond said, well, Invictus is great, but I think, I, but I want everybody to see the blind side. How many of y'all saw The Blind Side? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that one did a little bit better. But if you haven't, you ought to see it. The, uh, uh, Sandra Bullock, and it's the true story of this woman by the name of Leanne Tui, an ordinary mom who saw a, a, a deep need in a young man's life and did something about it. And I think for many of us, we have all these different question marks, but one of the question marks we all have has to do with a fundamental misconception we have about, about who it is that leads for God. I think we have the misconception that those who really lead for God, that those who really set people free are the Nelson Mandela types, you know, the kind that are, that are brilliant, eloquent, impressive, you know, you know, real charisma oriented guys. We think, you know, I'm not like that, so I can't do it. And then on the other hand, we have the problem that we don't see the story of the blind side as a story of leadership. Leanne Tui is a leader. She leads in her family to set this young man free, free from his poverty, free from his homelessness, free from having, ha, ha, having nobody there. Boy, didn't he have his own bedroom. He never had his own bedroom before in his whole life. And, 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 and they set him free from that. We got to get it. You got to get this today. It's not about your personality or your temperament or your, or your charisma or, or lack thereof. Leadership is about one thing. It's about influence. And God has given you influence. We all have influence. We have influence in our families. We have influence with our friends. We have influence with our co-workers. If you're a student, you have influence among your classmates. You don't have to have control to have influence. You don't have to have power to have influence. Wherever there's a relationship, there is influence. Every relationship you've got, y'all, wherever you've got a relationship, you've got Influence And God says to us, you don't have to be the next Nelson Mandela. I just want you to look for opportunities to use the influence you have to set people free from whatever I give you the ability to set them free from. One of, my favorite, one of my favorite leadership stories along these lines. A buddy of mine has a, has a son named Jordan. Jordan's in college now, but back when Jordan was in high school, Jordan was at this youth retreat up in the Dells. This was 2009, and he was in a breakout session. And the leader asked all the kids in this breakout session, what would you attempt to do for God if you knew you couldn't fail? That's a good question right there, isn't it? 
what would you attempt to do for God if you knew you couldn't fail? And Jordan starts thinking. And Jordan goes, man, well, if I knew I couldn't fail, I'd want to do something significant about world hunger. And then in that same meeting across, in that same room across the room was his buddy John. And John had exactly the same answer to the question. And they started talking about it after. Oh, that was my answer too. So they put their heads together. John went to one high school in our area. And Jordan went to another high school in our area. And they said, we're going to do, what we're going to do, we're going to do something about world hunger through our high schools. So they came up with this idea to where groups of students at these kind of competing high schools would, would get together on a particular day and they would, they would raise money and they would pack meals and send them off to people in the third world who were starving. In that first year, 2009, tens of thousands of meals were sent off that year. And then they did it again the next year. It was called Food Fight. Here's a picture of Food Fight. Food Fight, great name, huh? And Food Fight did tens of thousands of meals, and then it did tens of thousands of meals again, and then again, and then again, and then, and then it spread to five area high schools. And this year, they packed nearly a quarter of a million meals and sent them off. Yeah. I'm saying, listen, that could be your story. That could be your story. I'm saying that's doing something significant to set people free. But it doesn't have to be on a big scale. Let me read you a story. This story right here comes from a church in the city in Lincoln Square that your church helped start. The generosity of your church made this story possible. My friend's a small group leader down there, and she wrote me this and said I could read it. Last fall, my group decided what we wanted, that we wanted to be on mission together to help restore a part of God's dream for the world. We decided to partner with an organization that helps refugees resettle, and we were introduced to a young couple from Burma. Our group went to work asking friends and family to donate items to set up a small apartment in the city. When they arrived, we had a meal for them and told them we were committed to being their friends as they made their transition as refugees. Shortly after their arrival, we found out that the wife was pregnant, so we threw a baby shower. As we handed the first gift to them, some baby clothes, the husband broke down in tears. But he assured us they were tears of joy, and we continued on. When it was all over, he asked if he could say something. And he said, I need you to understand, until I was eight or nine, I didn't have pants. I didn't have shoes. Now my baby has these things before she's even born. This small group leader writes, I love being part of a small group that is leading in extending the love and hospitality of God to this couple. We're definitely not Nelson Mandela's, but we are using the influence we do have to bless the lives of our new friends from Burma. Listen to me, friends. Don't blow off the story of Moses like, you know, long time ago and land far, far away. You have so much more in common with Moses than you think. You may or may not be meant to be famous or to have one, let alone two movies made about you. But you are like Moses because Moses was an unlikely ordinary person who could not see God using his life to set other people free. Who could not see how he could take his rightful place of leadership in God's great and good story for this world. But it still happened because something happened in his life. Look what it says in Hebrews. We've been in the Old Testament today, but let's hop over to Hebrews in the New Testament. Here's how it happened for Moses and how it can happen for you. By faith. By faith Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God. 
Next verse. By faith, Moses persevered because he saw him who is invisible. I like that. Next verse. By faith, Moses kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer would not touch the firstborn of Israel. See, whatever question marks you've got about how God could use you to have your life be about something more than just you and your family, it can be about something so much more than you and it can happen. You can get past your question marks by faith. But when I say faith, I don't mean, you know, just some sort of... You know, don't stop believing. Journey fans in the house? You know, don't stop believing. Hold on to that feeling. Kind of, kind of. We're not talking about faith in terms of some spiritually positive generic energy you put out to the universe. No, we're talking about this kind of faith. Galatians 2.20. I now live by faith. Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And look what the one who loved me and gave himself up for me is called in the Bible. Christ, our Passover lamb. See what this is saying? It's saying that the blood, in the same way that the blood of the Passover lamb set the Israelites free, not just free from from death that night, but free to to take their place in God's story. That's what Jesus does. when, When his blood is applied to your life through faith, you got to understand this. That doesn't happen just so you can be forgiven and go to heaven when you die, as ultra mega significant as that is. That happens so you can be set free to set other people free. To set other people free from poverty. To set other people free from misery. To set other people free from addictions and problems and depression. To set other people free from hunger. To set other people free from facing a Christless eternity. You have influence and God is calling you to use it today. Not to just do some good things for him. Not to just be a little bit nicer person. He's calling you to be somebody who says, God, take my life. Use my influence to set people free in your story. It is communion time. It was, yeah, the Passover. When Jesus first celebrated communion, thanks. When Jesus first celebrated communion, he gathered together for a Passover meal. And then he told him, guess what? The Passover lamb is no longer the most significant event in God saving the world. What's about to happen to me tomorrow is I'm the Passover lamb. This is my body. He said, referring to some bread, it's for you. Remember, I'm your Passover lamb. I'll set you free, and I'll set other people free through you. This is my blood. I'm the Passover lamb. I'll set you free, and I'll set other people free through you. As communion trays are passed today, take a, take a cup. It's really two cups in one. The bottom cup has got a piece of bread in it. The top cup's got some juice. And hold on to it. And pass the tray on, and then I'll be up here after this, after a moment, and, and we'll take it together. And we're doing something really cool today. You maybe saw these door frames around the uh, auditorium as you, as you come in and as you go out. There's these door frames, and there's buckets on the door frame, and there's a, there's a red pen. And what we want you to do before, before you leave today is that this is true of you. If you receive this message today, I want him to set me free. I've been set free. And I, and, I, and I say yes to him setting me free to set other people free. Just take that pen and make your mark on that door frame. And you might even want to do that when you get home to the entry of your house. Just make a mark. 
we have been set free and we live to set others free communion time Lord Jesus thank you for sacrificing yourself for us and for the world you love so much help us we need you we're not able without you and in Jesus name everybody said